Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. This week, it's funny, I've had a few people introduce me as being optimistic, which I always thought was weird because I'm always the one screaming about all the fires. But they said, why would you keep fighting if you didn't believe there was something worth fighting for? Yal Eisenstadt is a thought leader, democracy activist, and strategist working with governments, tech companies, and investors focused on the intersection of ethics, tech, democracy, and policy. She has spent 20 years working around the globe as a CIA officer, a White House advisor, the global head of elections integrity operations for political advertising at Facebook, a diplomat, a corporate social responsibility strategist at ExxonMobil, and the head of a global risk firm. Currently, she is a visiting fellow at Cornell Tech's Digital Life Initiative, where she explores technology's effects on civil discourse and democracy and teaches a multi-university course on tech, media, and democracy. Yael has become a key voice and public advocate for transparency and accountability in tech, particularly where real-world consequences affect democracy and societies around the world. Her recent TED Talk, which you should definitely watch, addresses these issues and proposes ideas for how government and society should hold the companies accountable. Yael travels internationally when she can, I'm sure, as a keynote speaker at any number of venues seeking informed, inspirational women to help make sense of our world's most difficult challenges. Yael was named to Forbes' 2017 list of 40 women to watch over 40. She is also an adjunct professor at NYU's Center for Global Affairs, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and she provides context and analysis on national security, elections integrity, political and foreign affairs, and the media. She has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Brookings Techstream, Time, Wired, Quartz, and the Huffington Post, and has appeared on CNN, BBC World News, Bloomberg News, CBS News, PBS, and C-SPAN. You know, you get the idea. She's been everywhere. <laughs> and on policy forums on a number of podcasts. She earned an MA in International Affairs from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And I love this. The last line of the bios that I, I've cobbled together to, to present this to you, the last line is, more than anything, she is passionate about using her background and skills to help foster reasoned civil discourse. You are live on the Tech Humanist Show. Thank you so much for being here and joining us. Thank you. That was the most comprehensive bio intro. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand. It's sometimes a little overwhelming when you're hearing your own uh, life story being rattled off for you. <laughs> well, I'm excited for this conversation. Me too. And, and I think, you know, one thing that's really funny about this is, so I got to say right up front, is that I think it's hilarious to acknowledge this right in the beginning, that you and I connected when uh, you were tagging, you meant to tag Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Mass Destruction, on a post on LinkedIn, and you tagged me by accident, which happens all the time, I have to tell you. It probably happens for her the other way, too. And when I, I saw your bio and I was like, hey, um, you tagged the wrong person, but we should probably know each other. And here, that was That's about a year hilarious. ago. Yeah. Yeah. So Kathy and I had been on, I think it was an NPR show together. I was posting something that she and I had both been interviewed for. And what is funny, you know, I'm just going to put this out there right now. Hundreds of people, you must get this, try to connect with you on LinkedIn. They don't say why. They don't send a message. So I don't <laughs> respond to people who don't tell me why they're trying to connect. So when you wrote to me and you're like, hey, don't think you meant me, but we should know each other. At first, my immediate reaction is, should we? And then I looked you up like, oh, yeah, no, it looks like we should know each other. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad that we did connect. And uh, here we are and it all pays off. <laughs> yep. uh, or at least it's the beginning of paying off. We may see plenty of other collaboration in the future. 
And I was thinking as I was uh, reading and researching and you know watching your TED talk, which was wonderful by the way. I thought you know one of the things that I wanted to do is frame this discussion around your background, which and, and the various uh, roles and responsibilities that you've had. Which I was gonna say first of all, your bio is like you're the most interesting woman in the world. <laughs> really fascinating, and and to me it reads as someone who you know maybe when you encounter. It's, it's like when you encounter ambiguity that you engage with it fully to try to understand it or something like that. Is that how you, in reflection, would characterize the trajectory of your career or is there a different thing that, that you think of? I love that. I might have to, I might have to, <laughs> I haven't thought of it that way before, but, but it's really accurate. You know, it's funny for a while I was trying to, I was struggling with what's the through line. Yeah. You know, the, what do you do question when people say, what do you do? I'm like, how do I put that into it? <laughs> But the through line, I think it's pretty clear at this point. It's that I'm one of those people who runs head on into the fire, into the fight. I am passionate about fighting for this democracy, for, I just, I really, it's the people who are affected that I fight for the most. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, even when I was, you know, I start. I joined government before September 11th and during some of the darkest counterterrorism days, I, all of my work was about trying to focus on the people who were affected by all of these things around the world. And the same thing led me to Facebook. So I don't know, ambiguity, definitely. I like that. Yeah. But so just, I run head on into a challenge and I kind of wish, I mean, at some point that I could just stop running head on into every challenge and just kind of maybe sell muffins or bread or something and, and sleep better at night. Maybe it'll be like a little, a little pause and then you can get back into it. I, I don't know. Well, what's really, it's interesting to me, you know, that your, your story seems like it begins with this CIA analyst position. Is that about where, is that kind of your professional entry into, uh, into work or were you doing that? Yeah, I mean, I've done some, some little things here and there before then, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was 1999. I had just finished at SICE. And, you know, I wanted to work on foreign policy, global affairs. That was my passion. And yeah, State Department and USAID had hiring freezes and I ended up at the agency. And yeah, that's where sort of my global international affairs career really kicked off. That's cool. And also, uh, All Tech is Human commented, muffins for democracy. So there's, yeah. <laughs> there's a possible branching out that you could use. I have... Can I just completely tell a random quick little story about Muffins for Democracy? <laughs> I was in a musical, because I was a musical theater geek in high school, called Of The I Sing, which I'm sure not one person has ever heard of. That is <laughs> Yeah, for some reason that was, and there is an actual song in there, and it's all about democracy. I played a Supreme Court justice, a tap dancing Supreme Court justice, right? <laughs> and there's a song where they're trying to do a whole campaign. Actually, it's very apropos for today, if you think about it. It's very 1950s. It's about U.S. politics. Huh, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but there's a song <laughs> where the president's wife, they're trying to portray her as the perfect 1950s housewife, and there's an entire song about how she can make corn muffins. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to need to search this out. It, yeah. I'll try to put it in show notes if we can find any link to anything. Well, this is so, so it's interesting. So you get into the CIA and you end up, if I have this right, you end up stationed in Kenya. Is that right? So, well, not exactly. Okay. I, I, so join the agency. Um, well, in 99, it takes a while to get your clearances. So really started in 2000. Um, worked mostly on Africa issues. Okay. Of course, a lot of us had 
I mean, after September 11th, also worked on Afghanistan and all sorts of crazy things. And then in 2004, I moved over to the State Department. And so I was stationed in Kenya from 2004 to 2006. I was posted at the embassy there um, as a diplomat. I'm one of those weird people. I worked for like five different government agencies over my over my federal career. It's so interesting because I, I know um, some of the folks that I, that I know who have worked in government. They their description to the outside world doesn't sound that different, and yet they're like, oh no no no, this is a very very different role. <laughs> I get it. I totally do. It's amazing. But so your work there in Kenya, especially, but your work sounds like it had to do with um, dealing with communities that where constituencies were most at risk of radicalization. Is that right? Yeah. One of my multiple roles was to be sort of the embassy's outreach person to, to certain marginalized areas. And it was, I mean, Kenya, just for context, was a country that had suffered a few terrorist attacks. Our U.S. embassy had been bombed there in 98. And then in 2001, there had been another attack against an international hotel and an Israeli airliner. So it was a country and also bordered Somalia and Sudan. So it was a country where we were, we really is an ally, it was an important ally. And so it was really sort of hearts and minds type work of building bridges and communities and a mutual understanding in communities that are really marginalized, that are, and I mean, I can go into as little or much detail. Sorry, I realize I'm rambling here. But. No, that's great. I think it's really important. I feel like it's really important setup because it, it, you talk in a few different places or you wrote in a few different places about the work that you did in that context and how it gave you this framework of understanding that the, the, the human tools that we had for connecting with one another. And I know you talked about listening and empathy and so on. And, and you had this really powerful story that you wrote in, in courts, I think, about uh, a man at you being at a, a town hall meeting in Kenya. Can, can you do you know the story I'm referencing? And do you mind yeah. me telling it? I love how well you've done your homework. <laughs> yeah, that was an article I wrote. Oddly enough, the, the, that and the Time article were both before I went to Facebook, and they were and they they were kind of two sides of the same story. And it was where I was really exploring, and people have heard me talk, have heard me talk about how it really struck me that I had had an easier time engaging with suspected terrorists overseas than I feel I have right now engaging with Americans about political issues. And that particular story was I was heading a town hall in a town called Lamu up in the very uh, northern part of the coast near Somalia. And all of the counselors from the region attended. And it was really one of these, I was there with one of the U.S. military reps to explain why the U.S. military was even in the region and to, to really sort of answer questions, listen to the community's concerns, make sure that we were not doing anything that the community didn't want. And um, a certain one individual showed up and he had been a suspected terrorist. It's, it's a, I won't get into the whole story, but I had been following his trial. I, you know, I knew a lot about the man. Um, to be frank, the charges against him by the Kenyans were somewhat dubious to begin with, but he had been suspected of harboring the man who was responsible for bombing our embassies. So when he showed up, I just, I realized, oh shoot, I don't know why I didn't realize this person would be here. And I thought he would start attacking me verbally and start trying to argue with me. And he was the one who actually made me feel comfortable. And he was the one who stood up and thanked me for being there and talked about how important it was that I was willing to show up to listen and to answer questions. I didn't give a lecture. I didn't show up with any promises. I didn't show up with money. I didn't show up with, and he was 
he was just profound and going on and on about your ability to listen to us and to make us feel heard. And, and it doesn't change the fact that I can hold two ideas in my head at the same time. One idea of, I don't know that I'm supposed to feel okay about this person, uh-huh. but at the same time, he's showing me the power of civil discourse because the whole community took their cues from him and how he interacted with me. So yeah, it was a pretty foundational moment in, in how I thought about the rest of my career. Yeah. That that's why when I saw that story, the, to me, that felt like such an underpinning to so much of the work that sounds like it comes later that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated for sure, but it does begin to unpack, you know, what is the value of civility? And as you say, when you've got people who are taking cues in the community from these leaders, that seems like it's a really important dynamic to at least be aware of, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was probably the most powerful part was I saw the whole community, they saw him stand up to ask the question, they probably saw me stiffen up a little bit, mm-hmm. and then they saw how he engaged with me and it, the whole room changed. Mm. So yeah, no, it was a, at the time I didn't realize how foundational of a moment it was, but a few years later when things really started to break down here in the U S I look back on that moment a lot. Yeah. And I think, so it's been interesting to me because I've, I've watched these, uh, schools of thought unfold in terms of, you know, kind of idealist philosophies versus incrementalism and, and the, the way that those, sort of are positioned as poles and positioned as, you know, you're supposed to be on one side or the other of either you're going all the way toward, you know, radical ideals or you're, um, you're branded an incrementalist. And that's, uh, you know, the, the idea that you said, I think in your Ted talk compromise has become a dirty word. And that feels like it's a really important sort of framing a construct to acknowledge if we're going to do something about you know, creating reasoned civil discourse. Would you agree with that? Yeah, um, it's funny. And you're the first person that I've heard in a while use the word incrementalist. Mm. Uh, because internally, I'm probably pretty radical in my thinking of what I think needs to happen and what I would love to see in the world. But I, I said before, I, I'm a little bit more on the like RBG incrementalist uh, school of thought of if I can fix this one thing first, that's a building block to this, which is a building, of course, doesn't mean that there isn't part of me that's like, burn the whole thing down. Right. <laughs> but I think it is incredibly important to understand that m- my opinion isn't the only opinion in the country. And the incrementalist part of it is about trying to figure out how can you do the most good while also bringing in the most people into the, into the fold. I think you're so right. And you talked earlier about how you are constantly thinking about the people impacted, right? So that's an important piece too. We have to. We don't want to ignore the real world harms that are happening at a systemic level, like the police brutality and racist immigration policies and things like that. Uh, and 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 yet it feels like in order there's this whole process of trying to, you know, gain momentum toward legislation and policy and you know kind of the the solutions to these things. We seem to have lost some of the nuance in how we talk about any of those kinds of, of issues. It's, it's a really hard line to, to figure out right now. And I think, it, I think it leads directly into these social media and tech and, and uh, ethics discussions. It's what led me into the social media world to begin with. There so, you yeah. go. <laughs> so, so then how do, how do you end up going from the CIA role to uh, working in the White House or advising in the White House? So 
at that point in time, I was at the National Counterterrorism Center. I had come back from Kenya and I'd gone over to, I'm going to use all sorts of government acronyms, NCTC, <laughs> National Counterterrorism Center, heading up some of the Africa programs for sort of the counter extremism, hearts and minds type work there. And right before the change in administration in 2000 and 2008, mm-hmm. yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> my, my sense of time right now. It's so warped. <laughs> They knew that if there's a new incoming administration, it would require, so without getting into too much detail, the White House is staffed by multiple different kinds of people. Some are the political appointees and some are experts that are brought in who are still government civil servants. So they had put out a call to all these government agencies for everyone to put in their top two people to fill a role advising in the vice president's office. And uh, I went through the process and I was one who was picked. So it was an incredible honor. I got to serve. It was funny. They were actually looking for a counterterrorism advisor, which I mean, it's kind of the path I fell into, but it wasn't the path that motivated me. And then I was interviewing and we started talking about what I thought we should do in Sudan. And then they were like, Oh, we need an Africa advisor. Actually. I was like, great. I'll do both, (laughs) which nobody (laughs) should ever think there's enough hours. in Um, but yeah, so it was amazing. I got to advise the vice president, lead his trip to Africa that year, represent the USA at the World Cup. You're welcome. These are the real (laughs) tough things I do for my my country. Um, And it it was, I mean, there is no greater honor and bigger challenge than to be in that building because the biggest challenges in this country and in the world show up on the desks of the people in the White House every day. So it was pretty incredible. And it feels like conceptually, it's not that difficult to draw the parallel between uh, the the work you were doing in these communities and and understanding the radicalization and national security and counterterrorism and, you know, democracy protection and and protecting the most vulnerable and things like that. But but is there, as you're thinking, I guess, about this through line, is is there something that becomes clearer to you when you when you kind of reconstruct those those moves in, in retrospect? Well, those moves within government all were within a certain thread. Mm-hmm. Like, no matter what, whatever I was doing at overseas, I was representing the United States, mm-hmm. right? So all of that work was still within the greater context of U.S. national security, U.S. foreign policy, um, and really U.S. global leadership. Mm-hmm. And so that's all within that context. So then coming to the White House to be the vice president's advisor on those issues was absolutely full circle. And then it sounds like within the time frame that you were working within the White House, that perhaps that's when you began to pay attention more to the digital divide. Is that is that the right time frame? What, what, what sort of brought that to your to your attention? Yeah, so it was just a little bit later. Um, but as I was starting to think about transitioning out of government, my first thing, which is now that I think about it, kind of funny. Somebody like people were just saying, but what do you want to do? Mm. And so finally I said, you know what? I want to find one of the biggest, baddest companies in the world with a huge, profound impact globally who are screwing up local communities and help them do better. And at the time it wasn't Facebook. Now that could define Facebook now, but at the time it was ExxonMobil. Um, And so somehow I went from making that statement to ending up moving to Texas to head the corporate social responsibility to not head it, but to work on corporate social responsibility strategy for Exxon for two years. Mm-hmm. And then then I moved to New York and started, that's where it really started to hit me. 
like this breakdown in civil discourse in the US, this this growing polarization, what's happening. I never planned to talk about my past publicly. I never planned to publish, to write, to speak. But as I was watching the last presidential election heating up and seeing Americans tearing each other apart over things that we shouldn't be fighting about, I just started completely thinking this was all a bigger threat to our democracy than all of the national security issues I spent my career working on. Yeah, it's interesting because it feels like, uh, I think Eli Pariser's filter bubble talk was around 2011 or something around those ti- that time. And when I think about that now, it always sounds, seems so quaint, you know, kind of in retrospect. But I, I also recognize that it's the beginning, it's the, it's the, the uh, construct that, that sort of blossoms into the, the algorithmic filtering of content that, that creates this algorithmic polarization we see today. But even at the time that you're recognizing it in like 2012 or, or, or no, 2016, I guess by then you're, you're really like 2015 it. that yeah. I started exploring it. Yeah. Yeah. What did you see? Do you remember an example of something that really stood out to you as, as like, oh, this is, this is what I have to speak about. This is what I have to write about. I don't remember what the exact thing was. You know, when I, when I moved to Texas in 20, from 2013 to 2015, and it's funny, anyone who knew me at the time, they, they would have been less surprised if I had moved to Saudi Arabia than moving to Texas. They always expect me to move overseas. They always would have expected me. I don't know. But I think I had such an amazing time living in Dallas. And it occurred to me that I, who would always get really upset at Americans who would stereotype about countries overseas, particularly in Africa or the Middle East, and I had stereotyped about Texas without uh-huh. having spent time there. And so I kind of called myself out in that moment, like, well, why have I, why have I done what exactly what I've accused other people of? And yes, I in Texas I had friends who were obviously very different reality than my liberal, elitist, East Coast, whatever you want to call my crowds in New York and D.C. So that started making me look a little bit more at how we're engaging with each other in the U.S. But really, it was some of the rhetoric at the very early days of the uh, presidential election. So like in 2015 and the way Americans were starting to talk to each other, like there were some attacks that were starting to happen. All of the signs that I had seen my whole life overseas, I was starting to see here. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I know it seems like I love being in the public spotlight. I actually don't. Like friends had to push me to speak up and to write in those early days. But I thought I could see the steps of things that I had seen in like war-torn countries overseas starting to happen here. And I also, I didn't immediately pit, like pit it to being about social media, and I still don't, there's lots of factors. Sure. But I certainly recognize there was a huge difference in how we were engaging here in the US and how we had engaged in these communities that were not as connected to the internet and everything. And that's when I started kind of digging in into what's happening to the point where just people who shouldn't be fighting with each other are and what's happening to the way we're engaging here. And so, so at some point this leads to, you know, you're, you're writing, you're publishing, you're, you're, you know, making these, uh, putting these op-eds into, into publications, which, you know, you got a lot of traction at that time from what I saw uh, looking into the, the articles you had. Um, when does it lead to, uh, to talking to Facebook about this role? So, uh, yeah, I, wrote a few pieces and I remember the very first time I got 
invited to keynote this tech festival in Berlin. Mm. And I was like, me at a tech festival? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Um, and understand that I'd also spent my whole life not ever saying really CIA out loud or talking about it. And here I'm going to sit on the stage in Berlin and just blast my past to the world. But from that keynote to like, just it started, I started being on these tech podcasts and, and the more and more it started being about me talking about how fundamentally important it is to learn how to engage with people who aren't like-minded and to get off, <coughs> pardon me, off of this social media hamster wheel. And shortly after that, Facebook reached out um, and I started talking to one of the recruiters and it, it was a bit of a journey. I, I wasn't one to easily say, yes, I'm, I want to go work at Facebook. Um, but then you might recall the, the hearing, the famous Senate hearing in 2018 where Mark Zuckerberg, the one where he said, yes, Senator, we, we sell ads. That's right, how we right. make money. Um, a lot of that hearing had been about elections. A lot of that hearing, Mark Zuckerberg had talked about, like, finally recognizing that they need to do better on what to do about elections. Cambridge Analytica had just become this really publicly known scandal and they called me and one minute after that hearing ended and they said um we have a different role we want you to head a new team we want you to come head a team on elections integrity and our advertising side and just kind of was silent and I was like oh uh it sounds like a big job Uh, so yeah that's that's where that ride began began the day of Mark Zuckerberg's senate hearing and, you know, I think about a lot of people that I know who have gone to take jobs in organizations that they they think of as, as being off track. And they're hoping that by joining, they're going to be able to help be part of the process of bringing them back on track. And, and so I wonder if, in, in retrospect, if you have any advice to sort of your former self or to other people who find themselves into that in that situation, as you, as you go back and look at let, that opportunity and knowing what you know now and uh, whether you, whether that means you wouldn't take the job or whether you would, but you'll take a different approach when you get in. What, what do you it's think a, about it's that? It's a great question. Um, funny enough, just yesterday I published a piece about culture at Facebook and how the culture there will never be the type of culture that could actually fix these problems. And I bring that up only because the culture question is really important. So when I agreed to take the job, I had no illusions that I was going to fix it all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was not, I wasn't right out of college. I wasn't going to Facebook for the free kombucha. I (laughs) didn't think that one individual was going to make a huge dent. Um, I was very clear in my interview. And if anyone's considering roles like this, um, I would highly advise being very, very clear on what you want, what your expectations are. And I said, I said, this is how I work. This is who I am. This is not what you're looking for. Don't hire me. Also asked, do you have full support? from the top down to the bottom for my role. Because this is a role that is gonna be an outside the box thinker that's gonna be pushing you and challenging your assumptions and things like that. Do you have support? The one thing I would give myself advice for is four out of the five people who interviewed me, I knew were so on board with it and so yes, yes, yes. The final person I could tell from the second that interview started and I should have listened to my gut. I knew that person did not want me to come fill this role. Um, that would be my only advice. I The role was so important and the challenge was so important to me that I sort of 
push myself to believe, okay, that's just one person. I'll be okay. Mm -hmm. But I would get the advice I would give is, listen, it's not just about what somebody sells you in terms of the recruit. The recruiters are wonderful. They told me everything that I needed to hear. But you, I do think from both my Exxon experience and my Facebook experience, I think people downplay corporate culture and whether that company's culture is the right place for you. And this is why I wrote yesterday, everyone expected me to write some piece about Section 230 because the Senate hearing on Section 230 yesterday. And instead, I wrote a piece on corporate culture at Facebook and why they will never be able to solve the challenges that we want them to solve. Um, I think figuring out if it is the right culture fit for you. And culture, I don't mean in terms of wearing hoodies, sneakers, and playing ping pong. I mean, that to me was kind of annoying anyway. But culture, do they value what you're bringing? Mm -hmm. What I bring is not protecting profit, the bottom line, and scale. What I'm bringing is asking really tough questions and trying to solve actual real hard challenges and pushing you in a direction to put the public over profit. That's not a culture there. That's not who they are. So I would recommend really digging in on, in addition to the job description, do you truly believe this is a culture that's going to embrace what you're bringing? Because that age-old expression, culture eats strategy for breakfast, really smacked me in the face when I was there. Yeah, so does that does that spell that it's only regulations that are going to change the the, uh, the structure and the outcome of what's happening with Facebook and perhaps other entities that are that are similar. Well, it depends on which problem we're talking about, right? Because there's many. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put Facebook in a different category than most other companies for a few reasons. One, because I work there, so I have at least some sort of internal insights. But two, also, it is the sheer power, size, and dominance does put it in a category of its own. Mm -hmm. Three, there's also no accountability at all for Facebook right now. Um, Normally, you've got what? Four, maybe four or five structures that can incentivize a company to change. One is the markets, Mm -hmm. and the markets have proven they're not going to incentivize Facebook to change because they actually reward them right after bad behavior. Um, One is shareholders, but Mark Zuckerberg set this up as a dual class structure so that shareholders have no power Um, He cannot be replaced. One is employees, and I applaud the fact that more and more employees are speaking up about the things they're seeing that do not, does not sit right with them. Unfortunately, though, again, I don't know that it changes the incentive structure. Mm -hmm. And just remember, and I know I said this in my talk, so I'm trying not to requote my own TED talk, but they're not breaking the law. Mm -hmm. For most of the things I care about, which is how they're contributing to polarization, to radicalization, to hate speech, how their platform is designed and monetized to really break down civil discourse, what that does to democracies. I mean, there's a million other issues. These are the ones that I focus on. They're not breaking the law. And so I I do. I fully believe that the only way we're going to right some of the wrong in terms of how they're affecting democracies, how they're affecting elections will be through legislation. It doesn't mean I think everything has to be regulated, but for those things, absolutely. And you made such a good point. I know you just said you don't want to quote your whole TED talk, but I think this is a really good point that you brought up about, you know, first of all, that, that one of the main uh, components of how Facebook, as well as other social media platforms, 
operate is on user engagement and growth, right? Like, so it, it's all about generating these very strong reactions. So uh, it's been uh, known for a while that the angry reaction emoji on Facebook, you know, kind of generates the most, possibly the most traction in the feed. And so you'll see, you'll tend to see a lot more of the things that you uh, engage with, with those kind of angry reactions. Uh, but as you point out uh, in this, in your talk, the, the fundamental uh, business model is about those uh, operators. If those are the functions that are going to, you know, reward the business model, then there is no kind of operating incentive for for the company to shift away algorithmically from from those kinds of feedback mechanisms. So, have you thought about what what kinds of regulations it would take to externally impact those algorithmic factors, or to to help reshape those incentives in some way? Yeah, I mean, because right now, again, not only are they not breaking the law, but essentially Facebook is doing what it's supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're focusing on shareholder returns. And so the U.S. government's job is to protect, one of its jobs, is to protect its citizens from harm, mm -hmm. to protect its citizens from the externalities caused by dangerous practices of companies in, in, in addition to the national security and global affairs side of stuff. And it's that simple. When the car industry was told that they had to put seatbelts in all of their cars, you didn't see the car, well, you probably, maybe they did, but I doubt you saw the car industry say, oh, but there's so many cars on the road, it's gonna be so hard. Right, it's gonna right. be so hard to find them all and put seatbelts in them. I suspect they did, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. right. It, it ultimately, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, the science and the data showed that, I don't know if this is scientific, I would assume it's the data that showed that wearing a seatbelt protects lives, and there was, and they regulated that. With a company like Facebook, there's zero accountability for any of the real world harms caused by their platform. So they're not breaking the law, they're not incentivized to change. Mm -hmm. Because right now, I don't wanna get like too far into the weeds on section 230 and all of this, but essentially they have full immunity from any third party content because of section 230. And I'm not saying that you should get rid of Section 230. There are some things that Section 230 does that's very important. They protect companies like Facebook from being able to actually engage in content moderation. But to say that a company like Facebook is just this neutral platform where people are just posting content and therefore Facebook shouldn't be responsible for any of it completely ignores the fact that their tools are not just allowing people to post speech. Their tools are deciding what they're amplifying, what they're recommending, how they're connecting people, what you're seeing, which direction you're being steered into. Their targeting tools are allowing political operatives to use your human behavioral data to target you with specific messages. Maybe that made sense for like Adidas versus Nike. I cannot imagine that anyone thinks that that makes sense for political rhetoric. And so all of these things they're completely immune from because they claim they have Section 230 immunity. So I do think, I think before we get into the weeds of what's the actual law we need to write, because this is where every conversation breaks down. All the tech policy people start arguing with each other. No, but this is more important or free speech is more important or antitrust is more important. Why not start from like a higher level? 
Like, what is it? Government's job should be about what is it that is wrong that we need to protect or fix? I think it's pretty clear to many people that we have a broken down information ecosystem. The information ecosystem as it exists today is completely broken. It's dominated by a few unelected, unaccountable, incredibly rich white men. And I'm just gonna throw that in there. Sure. And who, in the case of Facebook, had this idea. You know, another thing I don't talk about a lot, but I was thinking about this in my culture piece the other day. So you had this guy in a dorm room, the great story, right? I mean, it shouldn't be such a great story. He created a company to rate women's looks, but he decides that the whole entire world is going to benefit and we're going to have world peace and the world's going to be great if he can connect everyone. You know, what's interesting in government. You wouldn't just be able to have an idea like that and then put all of the government, U S government's resources behind it. You'd have to have commissions and Intel studies and, and you would have to really go through every potential scenario first to validate whether that's actually true. He just said, I know that connecting the world is the most important thing that we can do. And people threw money at him and he scaled. And so he's achieved that he has dominated our information ecosystem. And there is not one stoplight, not one break that says, Oh, but this is a problem. He has free reign. I know I'm being really vague right now. It's just that I get into the section 230 debate so frequently <laughs> that maybe I'm sorry, I'm all tired, but <laughs> we do. I think most people can agree. We want a healthier information ecosystem. And what does that look like? Well, I would think that looks like a system where we're not rewarding outrage, anger, and hate more than we're rewarding expertise, diligence, wonky facts, or even just slowing down. I think we want a world where everybody has the freedom to say whatever they want, but it doesn't mean that some guy who's never spent any time researching anything but screams in the most salacious way has a bigger platform than somebody who spent their entire life studying the very same thing. Like this is, this is, we need to realign this. And as long as we continue to allow business models that prey on our human behavioral data to exploit our emotions and to target our, our core biases to keep us engaged, we're never going to get there. And it sounds like one of the things that's, that's challenging is, you know, just the premise that connecting people is a good is not a difficult one, I think, for many people to say, like, probably, right? That, that probably is true. But once you bring sort of the advertising, the monetization model into it, and you start talking about how, well, we'll, we'll leverage the data that gets collected in the authentic exchanges that people have with one another and then monetize that, and then in turn, uh, p political campaigns will be part of monetizing that and will be part of using the same data. That gets to be a very complicated equation to then break yeah, down. Yeah, I would even back up a step. I'm not sure I agree that that everybody be like, yeah, connecting everyone sounds like a great idea. I mean, don't get me wrong. I do think that the things that Facebook has accomplished early on are incredible. I use it. I stay in touch with my friends all over the world. I want to be crystal clear. I'm not one of those people who just wants to see the company die. Right. That said, there's a real naivete to not understand that there are also bad actors in the world. Sure. And when, so, so every time somebody tells me their startup idea and I say, Oh, that sounds really cool. But 
I can completely see how this particular community is going to exploit that. And these criminals are going to do they, they get they get upset. Like, how dare you tell me that my brilliant idea and is going to in any way cause harm? And then, and that's what's interesting to me. It's this. No, but my idea is amazing. Nobody. And, and I don't think we talk about that enough with Facebook. Like when Mark Zuckerberg said, nobody could have seen this coming. This is why this is my last line in my TED talk, because they use that line a lot. Nobody could have seen this coming when they were talking about Russian interference in the 2016 elections. Nobody could have seen this coming. I call BS. Yes, people could have seen it coming. Anybody who spent their career studying Soviet propaganda and studying the Cold War or who worked in that world could have seen it coming. They just had no idea how Facebook worked because these are two different worlds. But this my idea is wonderful. I'm going to connect the world. Nobody could have ever anticipated that a global actor would have exploited this for their own geopolitical gain. Of course, people could have anticipated that. This is. I wanted to ask you too, while you're talking about that, about the idea of um, you know faulty information and the idea of propaganda. You know, the notion of misinformation and disinformation and bad actors, is it is it meaningful, is it important to distinguish and know that there, the difference between misinformation and disinformation sure. in this conversation? Because, you know, obviously one implies a different kind of intent. And, and so there is that bad actor component. What do you think we need to be thinking about as we try as we disambiguate between those two when it comes to this discussion? I mean, that's, that's a great question. I mean, they are different things. Misinformation can really be, it can be intentional sort of, but it can also be much more innocent. It can just be when you share something that you didn't realize is not real or when you hear something, you mischaracterize it, you write about it and then that spreads, that's misinformation. Or you take a grain of something, but you, misinformation is abundant. There's no question. Um, Always has been not at the scale that it is now because social media gives a platform for anybody to scream out to 3 billion people. Disinformation is more intentional. Disinformation is an intentional misrepresentation of information with an actual agenda attached to it. And so this is why you'll start, I mean, it's, you'll start to hear these longer and longer sentences. And when people say misinformation and disinformation, they are different. Um, I don't necessarily blame Facebook for the fact that there are people who are saying things that aren't necessarily true. I do blame them for a allowing operatives to spread disinformation on their platform for B not listening to critics for years. Well, before I started talking about this stuff, there were critics well before me who were, I mean, you mentioned Eli. I mean, the foresight that Eli had to already start talking about whether or not there's disputes about whether filter bubbles are true or not. I mean, he was talking about this years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's just this, all critics, all critics hate tech. All critics are trying to stifle our ability to innovate and never listen to the critics. And this idea that this one guy who had this idea has this much power and doesn't want to even acknowledge that maybe the idea of not just connecting everybody and giving everybody a platform to the world, but then, as you mentioned, selling their human behavioral data and to be able to target people with information and deciding how you're going to keep people engaged, all of that 
that's the stuff I want to regulate around. I don't want to regulate around whether or not you write something on Facebook tomorrow that offends somebody. It's about the tools that they have created to enable bad actors to do the things they're doing. Yeah. You know, when I think about your comments in a couple of places about reclaiming our public square, and I just think from, you know, orienting this conversation in this humanist lens, what does that really look like, especially knowing that, you know, you don't want to uh, close down the social media companies, you know, maybe we see them reform and, and take on some different structures and incentives. Um, but what does it really look like in, in, a, in a more comprehensive way? Is it, is it just social media in these contemporary times and beyond? Or are we talking about, you know, news media as part of that ecosystem? What, what 100%. That's, and that's the other thing, like, you speak about something and then all the haters attack and go, oh, well, you didn't mention Fox News or, oh, you didn't mention this. Or you, I'm talking about one thing. It doesn't mean that's the only thing. Mm-hmm. We honestly, it's it's this for profit enterprises that make money off of controlling the information that we see, how we see it and how we consume it with no incentive to care about fostering healthier debate. Listen, we got rid of the fairness doctrine. We used to have, I don't want the U S government regulating speech. My gosh, anyone who thinks I do doesn't understand. Like, unlike Mark Zuckerberg, I did swear an oath to protect the constitution. Of course, I don't want U S government stifling free speech. That said, we have incredibly wealthy individuals with agendas, whether it's political agendas, which we see with some of the, um, some of the cable news networks, whether it's just profit and power motivation, like we see with some of the social media leaders, and they're dominating our public square. And I do think it will take people standing up and saying, this is not what I want. I don't know that we can get back to a place, this wasn't a perfect time either, but can we get to a place where there's a more public utility version of a public square? Can we get to a place where There are certain rules of the road about media and about incentivizing better behavior. Can we get to a place where there are social media platforms that encourage civil debate and do not purposely try to keep us addicted to their platforms by feeding us the most salacious content? Can we, I mean, I don't have all the answers. I'm one human being. This is where people love to attack if I don't have all the answers. But you do I, have a lot of answers. And I, I think I feel like you, you advanced a few ideas in, in some of your work. You've talked about uh, retraining algorithms around something other than engagement. You've mm-hmm. talked about building in guardrails to stop content going viral before it's reviewed. Uh, and, and you know, as you said, you could they could do all of this without becoming what they call the arbiters of truth. I mean, at the end of the day, one of the biggest things that are lacking is transparency. I mean, really, it's about so much of how we engage with each other is done is controlled in a black box at these companies. And I do believe that transparency is one of the major keys here. Whether it's transparency, I believe, for example, if the companies had to have some sort of oversight. I'm not saying exactly what that looks like, whether it's a government oversight body and it's not the Facebook oversight board. Like they might do some interesting work, but that's never going to do enough. I'm talking about whether it's monthly reports, quarterly. I don't have the answers of exactly how it looks, but I do believe if there was oversight into, for example, how the recommendation engines work, 
I want to be able to know, and I think we should be able to know, I don't need your secret sauce. You don't need to send me the code of how your algorithms work. But I think I have the right to know if the two guys that went and murdered a a federal officer in Oakland pretending to be part of the Black Lives Matters movement, but they were actually Boogaloo boys, they met in a Facebook group. Don't you think that we should have the right to know if Facebook's recommendation engines recommended them into that group and connected the two of them to each other? Like these are the tools that we have no vision into. We just have to trust Facebook when they say that that's not how it happened. And so it's about transparency. I think we should have transparency into how the recommendation engines work. I want to know, for example, I think we should have the right to know if a particularly harmful piece of content whether it's anti, let's, let's go to a COVID example, the movie pandemic. I mean, things like that have real world consequences. I think that some government oversight should be able to know, did that movie just true or did that post just truly organically reach the millions or did your recommendation engines and your algorithms boost, promote, amplify, send it? Those are the things that we don't have any answers to. And that's where I think the responsibility lies. I think if we could create actual transparency, and again, it doesn't mean that they have to give up their secret sauce. And it doesn't mean that I, private citizen, have to be able to know every ounce, but some oversight function within government to know, were you, did your algorithms boost that content to a level that it never would have reached on its own? That's what I'm talking about. And we have oversight in all sorts of industries. That's What happens when you have a product that is creating an externality in the world? That is where regulation and oversight comes in. And I think many of us would agree that Facebook is an interesting product, but it's certainly creating externalities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is all, I I wish we had hours to go. It's so funny when we've talked in advance of this discussion, you were like an hour, it's it's so long. And I think it goes so fast to me because I think there's just so much richness to talk about. Uh, you know, one thing I wanted to do is, is give you the opportunity to, to have a, an uplift out of, of the discussion. We only have a few minutes left, and I wonder, I hope it's an uplift. Um, as you think about, you know, rebuilding American society and beyond, of course, you know, I'm thinking about American society since we're both Americans, but I know we have international listeners and, and viewers. But I think it, it's a, we know that the U.S. is in some ways a, a sort of litmus test for a lot of what happens internationally. Do you think that are you optimistic, I guess, about our prospects to rebuild as a society? And what do you think needs to happen if if we're going to do that? Possibly. So it's funny, I've had a few people introduce me as being optimistic, which I always thought was weird, because I'm always the one screaming about all the fires. But they said, why would you keep fighting if you didn't believe there was something worth fighting for? (laughs) I think a few things. Coming out of this pandemic, This is not necessarily a social media answer, but coming out of this pandemic, I really, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I hope that we have, at least with some people, a shift in a more public service mindset, a realization that of the true disparities that are happening in this country, um, more, I think, with what's happening politically right now, I will tell you one of the things I'm optimistic about is an incredible increase in civic engagement. Um, I mean, I've always been a public servant at heart, which is why I didn't do well at places like Facebook. Um, but I think part of what brought us to where we are is also that we have 
very much lost this civic engagement um, part of American identity. So I do hope, I am hopeful. I hope it's not just everyone showing up to vote for this election and then everyone goes back to not caring about what their role is. At the end of the day, we all have a role in building the society we want. And for a long time, I think that sort of started backsliding a bit in the U.S. I hope that more and more people stay stay engaged and really fight for what they want to see. And whether that's their fights about wanting a healthier information ecosystem, whether it's their fights about wanting Facebook to step up and stop allowing conspiracy theorists and hate groups to thrive, whether it's racial justice, whatever it is, we can't just sit at home and like things on Facebook and think that we've solved the world. And I do think there's an incredible, I work with young technologists and startups who are trying to think through how to create more interesting products that, that, that works for our benefit. But when I see those kinds of pitches, that makes me pretty optimistic. So I don't know. I've, I mean, by the time this comes out in the podcast, it's going to be a different world. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be elections going to have concluded. And like from today, when we're doing this now to mm-hmm. when this will come out in the podcast could be, an unbelievable amount of change in this country. Um, I just hope that everybody remembers that we all have a part to play and this individualism versus collectivism has always been a huge tension in the U S I just hope that we nudge just a tiny bit more towards the collectivism direction. I I so appreciate that. And actually I was going to ask you what tools or technologies or things adjacent to technologies are you most hopeful about, but you talked about some of the startups and the founders that are doing things around you know, using technologies in, in other ways that are, that are kind of bringing people together. Are there other things that come to mind for you of, of uh, a democracy tool or civic tools or anything like that that are that are encouraging that you see? Yeah, I mean, just look at just look at what's all the things that have popped up just around this election. Right. Just look at the, how people have used tools to really help get out the vote and not just I mean, some of it. Listen, I'm I still believe in I, I don't believe technology is the answer to everything. I just I don't. Um, but technology that helps us get the right information that we need, that helps connect people without exploiting us. There are people trying to solve all these challenges. I couldn't name anyone that's the most exciting. I really like that there's more civic tech coming up. I really like that there are investors. I mean, I'll do a little plug. I mean, the reason why I've I started working with Beta Lab at Betaworks is because they are trying to invest in companies that are focused on privacy on a healthier internet on different business models people are really trying to solve these challenges but it's going to require a whole systemic change from how mar- how our markets reward companies to how investors invest in them to how people engage in their democracy and so i do hope that this civic civic engagement remains on the rise Excellent. I also want to give a a reward to people who've stuck around thus far. You shared with me one of the things that's keeping you busy right now. And I'm going to go ahead and pop some pictures up on the screen. Uh, Can you tell us about what we're seeing on our side here with this adorable pup? This is, I call him my little terrorist. Uh, This is my new little puppy who's trying to you know, he's supposed to bring down my anxiety about the election, but if any of you have ever had a really little puppy, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's like 24-7, I'm very tired. But then you see those cute little eyes and you kind of can't help it. 
Oh my gosh, the most adorable. So that's, that was really, that was worth it. Everything that <laughs> we just went through to, to have this conversation, all the exhaustion I'm sure you feel digging all these topics up again and again, at least we got to see your puppy. Oh, well, then that makes it <laughs> Hey, uh, before we close out, can you make sure that folks know where to find you or follow your work, uh, you know, accidentally tag you on social media? Like what, <laughs> how should they connect with you? Um, all of the stuff I've written or all the main things are on my website, which is just my name. Yeah, Eliaset.com or I'm on Twitter. It's always under my true name so that the Russians can't troll me or hack me, <laughs> pretend to be me. So just. At your allies and stuff. And I just want to point out, uh, so All Tech is Human has said great conversation. Absolutely. Uh, Carolyn Birch, a very important dialogue to advocate. Keep voicing it. And Georgia O'Neill uh, said or earlier, that was a great question. That's my mom, by the way. So thanks for tuning in, mom. <laughs> Y'all, thank you so much for being here with us today. And I, I just can't thank you enough for taking this time and, and sparing your energy with us to to unpack these issues and make sure we all we all leave here a little smarter and uh, a little more sophisticated in the way we're thinking about the interplay between tech democracy and ethics thank you so much thank you for having me thank you bye-bye thanks for listening to the tech humanist show you can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com where you can also find more episodes or you can subscribe at itunes or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Kate O'Neill. Join me next time for more about how data and technology shape the human experience.